Hello, I'm Gabby. Welcome to another episode of the Happier Life Project, brought to you by free mental health and wellness app, My Possible Self, in partnership with the Priory Healthcare. Today, we are discussing how to improve sleep, both for parents and the little kiddos, because sleep, or lack of, disturbs the whole family. For the parents and caregivers, effects of sleep loss include difficulty handling emotions, poor parental behaviour and coping skills, and an increased risk of mental health problems. New mothers, unfortunately, are at risk for insomnia, daytime sleepiness, anxiety, depression, and fatigue. And sleep deprivation can worsen symptoms of postpartum depression, which affects one in eight mothers. Here's an interesting fun fact for you. After the baby is born, men lose an average of 13 minutes per night, whereas women lose over an hour of sleep each night. And onto the little ones. Studies have shown that kids who regularly get an adequate amount of sleep have improved attention, behavior, learning, memory, and overall mental and physical health and not getting enough sleep can lead to high blood pressure, obesity, and even depression. Yes, that's in the children as well as the adults. Navigating a child's sleeping schedule can be incredibly challenging, worsened by even the best intentioned having an opinion on sleep decisions and sleep training, which can result in yet more pressure being put on the parent So it's no wonder today's guest is so much in demand. Lucy Wolfe is a leading sleep consultant and author of the best-selling books, The Baby Sleep Solution and all about The Baby Sleep Solution. Lucy works with parents on a one-to-one basis, providing a bespoke sleeping plan together with quality guidance, support, relational safety and compassion. Lucy is also the resident sleep contributor on Virgin Media One's breakfast show in Ireland and contributes far and wide as a parents, baby and children's sleep expert online, broadcast and print media. Plus, Lucy's got a big social media following, proving that this is an area where parents feel so overwhelmed and really struggle and they are desperately in need of her kind advice and expert suggestions. And just one final note before we get into the conversation with Lucy, even if you don't have kids just yet, you're going to pick up some great pointers for when that time comes. And if you don't have any children nor are planning to, there's some great tips for adults as well. So, ready to find a healthier, happier you? Let's get started. Well, welcome to the Happier Life Project, sleep expert, sleep consultant, and best-selling author, Lucy Wolf. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's lovely, and thanks for the lovely introduction, too. Just thinking about the title and the agenda of this podcast, the Happier Life Project, this is exploring areas in which we struggle with, and we speak to various experts in different fields, um, like yourself, to explore, converse, and get pro tips 
to help us build a happier, healthier life. And I think you would agree sleep has got to be right up there in terms of we must prioritise. Oh, without a doubt, that will always be my language. And I suppose it's because when we don't get enough sleep, it has such a huge impact on every aspect of how we experience our lives. And, you know, in some ways, it, it, for lots of different reasons, it hasn't been prioritized, but it needs to be more so because really it is like they refer to sleep as a third pillar. But I think in terms of hierarchy, I believe myself that sleep really needs to come first because then I think that cascade positivity that it stems from getting enough sleep um, can be realized in all areas then. Yeah. And I've spoken to a couple of like nutritionalists and, and personal trainers and actually they say sleep and pri- prioritizing sleep is is so so important and actually I got one PT to rank in order of you know what should we focus on and he actually said sleep first and he was a personal trainer yeah I think it's great that sleep's being positioned into the narrative in that way Mm. well you specialize in working with families so not just the babies and children but parents as well and this stemmed from your own personal experience you're a mum of four and um, not getting enough support or having access to the resources that you needed when you struggled. Absolutely, that's exactly the story. So I work with families, I work with the parent. I only ever work with the parent, you know, of the young child who maybe isn't sleeping. And yes, I ended up retraining, re-educating and continue to do so. Because when I was a new mom nearly 21 years ago and my son, didn't sleep very well as the months unfolded i was deeply affected by it but i also couldn't find any resources that kind of were aligned with what we were discovering were our parenting philosophies and that at that time you know everything was based on quiet out or the largest percentage of information that was available and we barely had internet like it's dial up at best then Mm. So you're relying on books. There was no sleep consultants based in Ireland where I am. And so when I went to my GP looking for a referral, she just said, there isn't any, there's no one to send you to. Mm-hmm. So what it meant is that as a parent, I needed to try and work through it myself, which we did. And again, for us as parents, we didn't really want to leave our baby alone to cry in order to get him to sleep better. It almost felt like, the solution was worse than the actual problem. Um, Mm. So between mix matching and reading different things, you know, we helped Jesse to sleep better, but it sort of initiated in me a a deep interest in A, the fact that Jesse had originally been quite a good sleeper and then he became a not so good sleeper. So I was really interested that that could even happen. And then Mm. I was interested because there was no resources. And then I went on to have another baby And by the time we had Ellen two years later, we started to have friends who had children because we didn't really have any friends with children when we first had our son. Um, And then it started to seem that lots of people struggled with their sleep. And I had thought that maybe we were the only ones, which sounds a bit strange, but that's very common. I hear that all the time in my own practice. So anyway, the long shot of it is that, yes, by the time I had my third daughter, who's nearly 16, I had decided to go back into education. And ultimately, I wanted to become the person that I felt I needed 
when I first uh, was struggling. And ultimately, that's why I've done. I've been in practice for over 12 years. I've continued my education journey. I'm now doing a postgraduate research in this area. And I guess I think it's a total privilege to be able to support parents and to do so with a responsive approach, because I guess that was so important to me then. And mm -hmm. I think it's important to a lot of parents, the majority of parents, I would say. I mean, I don't have children myself, but I've got plenty of friends, most of them that do. And I know that they are just sometimes so exhausted, they can barely function. And um, you must have parents that come to you at their wits end because it's part and parcel if baby doesn't sleep parent doesn't sleep right so you know it affects everybody yeah unfortunately yes people come to me when they're at their lowest and they come to me when they're really quite vulnerable and I'm very very aware of that like I'm very aware of how much courage it first of all takes to ask for support because often when parents struggle with their sleep specifically, they feel they failed. They feel that they've done something wrong. Whereas what is absent is enough in understanding psychoeducation around infant sleep so that parents can get a deep understanding of it before they even have their children, which probably would prevent a lot of the challenges that parents experience. Because often it's a lack of understanding or knowing about how sleep works what helps, what hinders, and what parents can be doing in a gentle and emotionally appropriate way quite early on. Whereas lots of times parents think that they're just going to sleep. And lots of babies just do, but a lot of babies just don't. And I suppose it's mm -hmm. those ones that I'm really interested in because obviously that's what end up with me in my practice. And to just, mm -hmm. you know, as a practitioner, when I get all those cries for help, if you want to call them that, at one point in my practice, it was so deeply overwhelming. So then I went on to write my books. I went mm -hmm. on to develop my online courses. And obviously I have a, a social media platform where I try to share as much, you know, free content because I think everyone deserves to hear quality, you know, information and stuff that might resonate with them just to help them in some or part of their journey. Um, mm -hmm. Because parenting is hard enough. Yeah, and I guess there's the sort of things that we all know in terms of like getting sleep, but I would imagine a lot of parents come to you and say, well, we've tried that, we've tried that, we've tried that. They're just really frustrated. And like you said, they feel like they're doing something wrong. But I thought it was interesting that you said even before the child comes along to get the parents clued up on this stuff, I suppose. And when a mother is pregnant in terms of prioritizing her sleep, does that affect the baby that's growing inside her from even from then, do you know? It's not known to, but at the same token, we do know that there is a womb world so that all the interactions that are happening in, in utero have a, a developmental impact on baby, you know? Mm -hmm. So I suppose mm -hmm. we don't have that information that let's say a mom who struggled to sleep, you know, like inherited sleep issues if that makes any sense to you but yes. I suppose I definitely would kind of circle back to that psychoeducation that I feel is absent from preparation from the antenatal preparation and is so important because we know actually from studies that if parents are educated around the normative development of their child's sleep 
that actually they feel more confident, they understand. Because you see, there's lots of different narratives out there. And one of them is that, you know, babies should sleep by a certain age and they should do this and they should do that. And very mm -hmm. often that isn't the case. And I suppose just the way that sleep develops organically, developmentally, there is no greater time of development of sleep than in the first six months of the baby's life. And of course, it goes on, it keeps on developing until your child is, you know, five to seven years old. But in this first six months where it goes from being immature to maturing and again, just understand how that might work. So they go from having, you know, they are doing sleep cycles, but they're not entering sleep the same way that we do but by the time they're four to six months they are now doing you know the sleep that we'd be familiar with the REM sleep and the, the non-REM REM sleep and what starts mm. to happen is sleep cycles begin to form their brain starts to cycle through sleep and this all starts in this first six months of life and where their body temperature is developing their cortisol levels are beginning to you know regulate and again there's a kind of cocktail that goes on with a circadian rhythm that is also maturing that has such an impact on how our children and then thereby the parents experience their sleep. And just even knowing small things that you can do to help regulate, because we're all relatively familiar with the idea, the concept of a body clock. But I don't know, do we ever always think about it as the infant with their body clock and what might help them, you know, with a regularity to the day, exposure to bright and natural light and, you know, kind of beginning to shape their experience of you know creating dimmer lighting at bedtime you know in the first six to eight weeks the baby has a maternally transferred melatonin level which is the sleep hormone then that that is gone and they start to make their own but of course we can support that by creating light and creating a dim light to help replicate you know sunrise and sunset just all these things i guess i think are are easily understood and easily transferred in terms of knowledge base to parents, but as early as possible, which will help them to make informed decisions. Yeah, I read somewhere that sleep training should start around six months. And is this because of just basically what you've explained in terms of like the development within the first six months and then as they're hitting that six month mark, that's when, like you said, they start to sleep. I guess, in the same way that uh, an adult would in terms of like the REM sleep and whatnot. Is that why the, the training should start around six months or is that not true? Because I did get it from Google. <laughs> yeah, no, I, and I suppose just, no, that's perfect. And I suppose for me as a practitioner, I tend not to use words like sleep training because again, I think it has really, it has really high negative connotations with, you know, mm. crying alone. And that isn't really what responsive interventions you know look like i typically think of sleep learning and yes we do recommend that there is no sleep training or sleep learning before six months but that isn't to say there aren't things that parents can be doing in the first six months to help promote and initiate the child's sleep profile i generally take encourage parents to split their child's sleep into two halves under six months uh, where we gently shape the, the infant sleep with you know, a couple of different things that I can talk to you about. And then beyond six months, we can do some gentle sleep learning, which kind of helps move the needle if the preparation work in the first few months hasn't, um, you know, initiated mm. or manifested what a parent is hoping for. And so there, that is, there is a distinction and that is why that distinction exists because it's based on the maturation of your child's sleep. 
beyond six months, we know so much more in terms of this child's ability to consolidate sleep. And again, we're not always looking about or talking about sleeping through the night, whatever that might look like. Generally, what I'm helping parents to do is create a situation where we, we achieve sleep with relative ease and that sleep is maintained at the rate and the pace that the child themselves is developmentally able for. And that is also then based on the informed decisions that the parents are making. And again, that doesn't have to be in a, you know, obviously it's lovely if it happens rapidly for families. But for me, I think it's allowing these things to, you know, that we set the scene and then we allow it to unfold at a rate that feels right for everybody. Mm. You mentioned a couple of times about the, you know, leaving the child to cry or not. And, um, I don't think me personally, I could just let a child baby even cry themselves to sleep. But I also know that's kind of been, well, instilled or taught. I don't think know if it's old fashioned, you tell me. But I do know people that they use that method. And for me, I find that I would find that too traumatic for the child and for myself. Um, and I'm sure people think like me. And I also know people don't think like me. And I just wondered what your thoughts are there I know you say many times parenting is hard and we shouldn't be judgmental or anything like that but it does feel kind of cruel yeah and you see I suppose ultimately um, I would support a parent who's made what decisions they've made based on the information they had in front of them but as a practitioner and as a parent it isn't something that I would be an advocate of because I think that first of all yes you're right cry it out, leaving a baby to cry on their own, or a variation of that had gained, uh, you know, like the footing of being the general knowledge base um, of the way of managing infant sleep. But we know so much more about, you know, infant mental health and emotional development. And also we do know that although those strategies can be effective, they can be quick, they can be effective for some parents, we also know that most parents, the majority of parents probably are adverse to that because it's kind of counter to all of their, you know, their biological processing of support and comforting their young child, mm. which leaves this kind of squeezed middle, if you like, that maybe some parents who want to improve their sleep, but they don't want to leave their child on their own to cry. They feel it has to be one or the other. And I guess that's, I guess, where I come in because I feel that you can sensitively and emotionally appropriately support and accompany the baby on that transition. That doesn't mean they won't necessarily cry, but what it means is that the parent will be like completely available, physically, emotionally, distracting, picking up and really soothing and comforting. So I suppose whatever baby has learned and whatever they may be, we need to unlearn the way that that can be achieved. There is a better way, I would suggest anyway. And I want that. Mm. I want parents to know that because lots of time they feel they, they don't have a choice. And I suppose creating that choice is important. Mm. And the child is crying more often than not. It's separation anxiety. Is that? Well, it generally ends up being kind of multifaceted because, mm. for example, a lot of sleep challenges that parents experience are to do with how the child experiences their sleep in the first place so if your child is beyond six months of age for example and that you're feeding them to sleep or rocking them to sleep or holding their hand to sleep the chances of them being able to maintain their overnight time sleep is less so than the child who's able to get themselves to sleep 
without those external forces, if that makes any sense to you. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. often when parents are looking to improve their child's sleep, they need to explore ways to make that transition from rocking to sleep, from feeding to sleep, because it's one of the barriers in some instances to why the child is waking so much throughout the course of the night, because they're struggling to transition through their sleep phases without parent input. Now, we're not looking for no parent input anyway, but what we're trying to do is maybe improve the child's own sleep ability, if that makes any sense to you. So you might have heard words like, you know, independent sleep and self-settling. But what I tend to try and convey is what I call sleep ability. And to help improve sleep, we normally need to improve sleep ability, which means the ability to go from awake to asleep without lots of parent intervention and the route to establishing that is sometimes you know doing feeds at the beginning of bedtime rather than to induce sleep or you know rocking and introducing a bedtime routine instead of rocking to sleep but when you take away things that have been familiar Mm. and you introduce something that is unfamiliar your baby is going to communicate with you that this is different how they've been experiencing it and herein lies this challenge of you know how can we help them to transition now honestly i try not to even get too bogged down in let's say the approach itself except to say obviously if we're going to make those sort of changes i wholeheartedly believe our children must be accompanied on that journey in a physical and emotional way and it's a staged based approach that then can be phased out as the child gets better and that sleepability starts to grow but if i'm honest with you the timing of sleep when sleep is offered how it is prepared for where it is prepared for and the emotional availability of the parent themselves probably is more important than the method does that make any sense to you Mm, i found it interesting about the whole not having a drink before bed to help sleep through the night and then i mean certainly in my family a warm a warm milk before bedtime i'm gonna hold my hands up i've carried that on But, oh yeah, uh, gorgeous. And like, I mean, I suppose what I want you to know is nothing's wrong with anything until it's not working. Does that make any sense? Yes. Right? So that's the bit that I'm deeply ah, interested in. Okay, gotcha. So, so whatever you do that works, don't stop doing it. Is my and I get lots of messages on Instagram. Like I obviously create a post that's troubleshooting oriented, and then people are saying, "But I'm doing this. Is this okay?" genuinely if you're doing something that feels okay and it works for you keep doing it that's a hundred percent right for you i'm always focused on when things aren't working and when they're not working i pay a lot of attention to things that i know don't help so Mm. i generally find there's a couple of what i call barriers and actually the drink before bedtime can be one of them but let me put that in context the Mm. way the child gets to sleep potentially determines whether they're able to maintain their sleep through their natural sleep phases. I've mentioned natural sleep phases that are maybe sleep cycles already. But let me just explain to you really briefly that when a child begins to transition through their sleep phases, just like an adult, they have what's called a partial arousal. And that partial arousal is, I often refer to it as a check-in system. So the brain checks in to see, is everything okay? Is it the same as it was when I first went to sleep? And if it is, then safety exists and baby can transition into the next phase of their sleep without signaling, if that makes any sense Mm -hmm. to you. So if they are fed to sleep, the drink is close to sleep time. What we often see then is that when the baby has a partial arousal, it becomes a complete arousal and they signal and they need that support to get back to sleep. And so feed sometimes unless there is a clearance between them. And this is from six months plus 
if this is 45 minutes between the last feed and sleep time, I typically find we see more sleep problems in that cohort. Now, it won't always be the case, but it is one of the things I always integrate into a plan. And mm-hmm. what I want you to know is that it doesn't need to be a boob to sleep or a bottle to sleep. As children get older, it could be just a sippy cup of water or just a quick gulp before they go to sleep. And in my, I know it isn't this, but I often explain it as being, it's like a muscle memory of sucking being deeply attached to the sleep experience and then the need to suck back to sleep hasn't been totally diminished so again if i move the feed out of sleep i then know that i can create a high sleep ability with a responsive approach so the baby the child is handed over their own sleep ability which clears the way for them to start cycling through their natural sleep phases now it's not as clean as that but mm-hmm. again it's about sleep onset what happens when i go go to sleep and obviously what happens when I'm returned to sleep often become the reasons why. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. So then as the child gets a bit older, maybe they don't have warm milk, but what if they have like a hot chocolate? I was reading up on sugar and sleep um, just before this this call. And uh, this was an article I found in The Guardian, the alarming truth about how sugar ruins your sleep. Eating sugar late at night overstimulates you. It gives you energy and makes you ready for activity. But that's not what we're trying to do at night. We're designed to shut down towards the end of the day. Sugar uses up a lot of magnesium, which you need for sleep. So in terms of with the little kiddos, giving them a sweet treat, a pudding, a hot chocolate before bed this isn't the best thing to do. Yeah, like I suppose, you know, when we're looking at sleep, we look at it, I look at it as a whole. So I'm looking at, you know, what time we wake at, what we do when we wake up, what are our activities like, what's our connection like, what's our diet like, what's our hydration level like, what what supplements are in the diet, you know, how much time do I spend outside versus sitting down? Because everything Mm -hmm. that we think, feel, eat, drink, see and do affects our sleep. So again, with young children, the majority of young children probably don't have a high sugar diet. But again, as they get older, that can obviously, you know, become and then there can be hidden sugar in a young child's diet. So it's about yeah. being mindful. You know, I like to think that a lot of parents are you know, mindful of these things, these things already. Um, however, I see lots of ice cream after dinner in, my, in, in children's notes. So again, I would be mindful of those things. And look, I've got four children. If you come to my house, there's lots of everything here. There's devices, there's time spent inside rather than outside. There are lots of sweet treats. Um, But however, when we're troubleshooting, I guess I try and clean as I go, if that makes any sense. So I work on a lot of foundation Mm -hmm. things. So before I ever work on transitioning to, you know, from rocking to not rocking or from feeding to not, I really try and balance the day on from a feeding and a sleeping perspective. I'm deeply interested in balance between sleeps. I'm really interested in, you know, the understanding of how much time to be awake before we're asleep again. So sleep pressure and to like capitalize on that for young children so that they don't become overtired because they have exceeded their sleep pressure. So when the young body becomes overtired, it has a chemical response, which puts cortisol and adrenaline into the system. So again, if you put your sugar to one side, because this guy is going to take over, like cortisol and adrenaline puts the body into the fight or flight mode. It can make the body resist sleep. And it can also make the body find it really difficult to maintain sleep. So I'm really interested in regulating that, reducing vulnerabilities around becoming overtired. I really try and encourage parents to start to understand what a tired child looks like compared to, you know, what getting tired versus 
over child might look like so mm. if I was in a room with parents I might say you know what does your child do when they get start to get tired and often parents might say oh they start to get cranky they rub their eyes they start to yawn they start to get really funny or they get really energetic and those symptoms generally to me represent overtired symptoms so this cortisol secretion has likely already happened so sometimes just getting your sleep time before that happens can make a huge difference i look for brief eye rubs brief yawns moments of quiet where your baby your child's body is getting hormonally and chemically ready for sleep and i try and capitalize on it and then i start to introduce you know wind down times that help to relax the body and also rituals that we introduce that can help, you know, bedtime be a lovely connected time so that before we ever get to the big separation that potentially is sleep time, we have those points of connection. You know, we've got lots of physical contact. So that's going to improve the, you know, the relaxing chemicals. And then we use the dim lighting to help promote the melatonin. And so naturally now we're capitalizing on this cocktail of hormones that occur when it's time mm. to sleep. And your advice, what is an example of a great bedtime routine for a little one then? So I definitely have an opinion on this. Um, <laughs> you won't be surprised. But I also will say is that problems with sleep live at bedtime without parents realising it. But also what happens first thing in the morning sometimes sets the tone for bedtime. So I'm known for answering a question almost with a question because I, I think it's so multifaceted always. But I think it's important that if we're looking to establish a bedtime, establishing a corresponding wake time is important. So actually with how we start the day determines how the rest of the day unfolds. So that for me is acknowledging, first of all, that anything before 6 a.m. is considered nighttime and anything after 6 a.m. is generally considered OK to wake up and that anything later than 7.30, we should be awake so we can regulate the body clock. And that when we get up, we can expose to, you know, your first feed and bright and natural light. And then depending on the child, you'll be offering them their feeds and their naps throughout the course of the day. And then I can fast forward to the evening time. I think one of the most important things about bedtime is that it's, it's, it's organized before the baby gets tired, okay? So oh, wow. this can start to feel like a mathematical Olympics almost because of the way I have kind of deciphered it. But essentially there are certain amounts of time that tend to work very well. So let's say between four and eight months, it's ideal if bedtime is planned within two hours of waking from the last nap, okay? And then also if they're eight months to about 18 months, bedtime works really well if it's planned about three to four hours after the last nap. And then when we're dealing with an older child who's still napping, four to five hours. So this often looks like, mm -hmm. you know, sleeping until, 3, 3.30 or 5 p.m. depending on the child's age. And then it means potentially starting bedtime relatively early, okay? And early bedtimes, well, they're really good for loads of different reasons. They really help consolidate nighttime sleep. We know this from research, okay? So well, what we really know is that short sleep is predicted by late bedtimes, okay? But what we don't have is a, an exact what's bedtime meant to be. However, when I'm working with a child who's um, struggling with sleep, I generally work off in, aiming to be in bed asleep for seven. And I work around that to see ultimately then what is the natural bedtime. Once the last drink has happened outside of the bedroom, I normally encourage an older child to put it into the sink or the dishwasher. But I generally tend to finish that around 6.15. I don't necessarily think a bath as a prerequisite, even though I know a lot of parents do do a bath. I feel sometimes it's a big undertaking for working parents. 
for parents with lots of children. I also don't necessarily feel it winds children down. It may wind them up. And I don't know if necessarily children need washing like that every day. However, I'm a big fan of hygiene. So obviously once they've had whatever they've had, they're either going to have a bath or they're going to have a wash and then they're going to go to have a bedtime routine. The bedtime routine ideally would happen in the bedroom that the child is actually going to sleep in. Lots of parents do the bedtime routine in different areas. Like might they do, might do it downstairs, they might do it in their bedroom. But mm. the ideal place to do it is in the room that baby sleeps in because you want your child to have positive feelings, forms and associations with the room that is associated with their sleep. And you like the idea of bedtime itself kind of being logical and linear so that there's not too many things that break the spell of the bedtime routine. So once we leave the living space, for example, and we've done our hygiene jobs and we've done our teeth washing, then we can go into the bedroom and then we can work on, you know, getting baby ready for sleep, doing the lights, closing the curtains, changing the nappy, putting them into their pajamas, into their sleeping bag if parents are using one. And once the dressing to sleep has happened, and parents are often surprised that I might include that as part of the bedtime routine. I love association. Like I love, this is my costume for sleep. This is what happens to me when it's time for sleep. And whilst you're getting them dressed and ready, you can be chatting with them, singing with them, making eye contact with them. And this connection is really helpful to what you're looking to ultimately do then is, you know, help them get to sleep. And we know emotional availability at bedtime is a big predictor of longer sleep as well. So just engaging in that, lots of cuddle time, book sharing, songs, physical contact, eye contact, just mm. engagement. And about 20 minutes in duration, there's my perfect bedtime routine. Oh, you're making my heart swell, Lucy. <laughs> um, oh. I, just, <laughs> I just wanted to, because I think it's important, especially being a mental health app. This one is kind of for parents. I think a lot of the time, like they're probably by the time they get the kiddos to bed and to sleep, they're like, okay, it's our time. But then maybe their bedtime routine goes out the window and actually maybe they're not going to bed as, as soon as they should or they're stimulating themselves because they're watching TV and they're on their iPhone. And again, no judgment. I am guilty as, as anyone for, for, you know, screens before bed, even though I know it's not the good thing to do. But how important is a parent's own bedtime routine? I mean, I hear a lot, especially when the kids are babies, the advice is sleep when they sleep. Which kind of makes me a bit mad, if I'm honest, because it kind of feels like an unrealistic sort of guidance or recommendation, you know, because first of all, sometimes they just don't sleep. Okay. And uh, <laughs> then also, mums often feel under pressure that when baby's sleeping, they've got to do all the jobs that they didn't get done while they were doing all the care of the baby in the first place. Obviously, although we talked, you know, a good bit about sleep and that. The parent is the most important person in the whole relationship here because the parent is the core of the cup, you know, and so their own emotional well-being, their own care of self is unbelievably important. But it can feel like just something that's not tenable for someone who's trying to look after a baby who is, you know, mm. restless, waking loads, you know, relationship between the parents or the caregivers often can become a bit fraught. And I think then it's about really doing everything you can to prioritize yourself. You know, the relationship the parent has with themselves is the best predictor of the relationship they'll have with their baby and their child. So again, yeah, I would be a big fan of a parents when there's both involved, you know, trying to get good at sharing the load when that's realistic, 
drafting in support when that's possible, taking care of yourselves and each other, whether that means one of you staying up to do the last feed, inverted commas, or one going to bed early one night. And you see, the dilemma comes that sometimes when you've got lots of young children and you get that moment where they've all gone to bed, you almost want to kind of meet yourself again, like kind of get in touch with your... And so that often is one of the reasons that mums don't go to bed or dads don't go to bed because it's their only time. But again, it's about deciding what's right for you, what fills your cup. Maybe it is scrolling on Instagram. I definitely do a lot of decompression, scrolling through social media. I'm like you. I obviously know all the guidance, but sometimes I just need that kind of decompression. Mm. you know before mm-hmm. as a relaxing you know I always think it's like a gift to myself things that we do so again it's just trying to figure out things that feel right for you and then trying to package it up in a way that's quite caring and it doesn't have to be you know going to bed every night at eight o'clock but I know when my kids were really young especially I think when we had two of them I went to bed really early for a good while while my husband stayed up with the baby to do the feed right expressed and then that meant that I maybe wasn't needed again until 2 a.m so I actually got a block of sleep you know if you can get a block of sleep that can be very helpful to your mood and your behavior and how you're experiencing it I also think about deciding how are we going to share the role if it's a shared role does that make sense to you that Mm. like often mums specifically end up taking on a lot of the caregiving duties and that often is really natural and feels really but again maybe then that means that other things need to be delegated so it's just trying to figure that out between caregivers and again some people might be listening to this and be driven insane because they they are on their own so it's just trying to again for parents parenting on their own you know how can they prioritize their own selves and their well-being and what works for them and can they look at an earlier bedtime because that might give them a little bit of time in the evening time you know so it's just trying to carve out those well-being you'll be familiar with them already I almost honestly feel a little bit like oh can we Mm. can we keep telling them that's what they're supposed to do when it feels like an impossible task but again if we could just kind of carve it up into small chunks and to know Mm. that parents first Mm. and what about if you're co-sleeping definitely this happens a lot in my family baby then grows into child and is still sleeping in bed with the parents and I think then the struggle is so great isn't it to get them in their own bed so again certainly from the experience in my family it can be and I suppose for me I am really an advocate of parents figuring out what feels right for them and that doesn't mean it's forever either again Mm. obviously we talked earlier about you know familiar and unfamiliar so if sharing the bed is familiar to a child then not sharing the bed with them at some point will be unfamiliar now some children will potentially themselves decide they are no longer wanting to share the bed with the parent and they'll go off and want their own bedroom that obviously happens i don't see those families does that make sense i only Mm. see the parents who have committed to something either reactively or because they made a a conscious decision early on. But at this point now, they don't want to do it anymore. And it does take work to help a child learn to fall asleep in a different way, Mm. in a different context. But it can all be done in a really loving way. But like with most things, it's going to take time. The older your child is, the more familiar they are with something. But again, I then try and get the older child invested in their own sleep happiness and kind of showing them, again, it's how do we package it up for them? You know, how do we help them 
how do we define their sleep place? So, you know, if you always lay in the bed with them to get them to sleep and then they come into you overnight, it's not unreasonable for them to want your body if they had your body in the first place at bedtime. So right. sometimes it's worth looking at being, why don't you be alongside them at bedtime to begin with and create that difference? So you're still very available, but instead of your body in the bed, maybe your body is next to the bed. That's a nice intro to, you know, that change. But then it is about helping your child understand where do I sleep? Because, you know, even if you return them to their bed every night until 5 a.m. and then let them come into the bed at 5, it's a mixed message around what you, where you want them to sleep. So I very definitively always ask parents, where do you want your child to sleep? And it doesn't matter to me if it's in the bed, as long as it's done safely, of course, and we're making informed decisions. But if they want something different, then, of course, they need to make that decision and then work through a plan I think a plan is really important from a sleep point of view because it's never just one thing. I'm sure you're probably starting to hear that, that there are so many force factors that influence sleep. There isn't mm. a tip that's going to make it better. So then just mm. trying to have a whole picture for parents and help them work through that and understand that it could take four to six weeks to kind of change what you've been experiencing, what they've been experiencing, as in there are kind of no real three-day solutions. Right. And and again, it goes back to what you were saying about the crying thing as well, right? That it's just, it doesn't need to be done in a cruel way where the kid is feels unsafe, should we say, because this is different. Well, you see, this is it. Like, you know, we have to feel safe to fall asleep. And how do we feel safe with our parents' input, with the emotional temperature being right for us, whilst by us, us, our children having points of contact? So I guess that's why I kind of put a lot of, of emphasis on that whole piece because unless we have that it's going to be difficult for things to kind of translate yeah absolutely final question i ask every guest at the end of the episode oh goodness to set us some homework i think you're going to nail this one don't worry based on the theme of the episode please so in in this case what is a simple actionable step that we can take when it comes to let's say our family's bedtime routine that will help us on our mission to building a happier life. Oh, actually, I'm going to nail this one. Like if you said to me, tell me what your favorite movie is and all those things, I'm no good at any of those things, but I can actually do this bit, no problem. I think, first of all, it's about making the decision. What is it you would like for yourself? Okay, Mm. because sometimes, you know, let's say you'd like more sleep. You'd like them not to sleep in your bed. But let's define what would you like for yourself? What would you like it to look like? What does this happier life look like for you? That's the first thing. And let's be intentional around it. I would like my baby to sleep in a cot in their own room. I would like more sleep. Okay, so perfect. We've set our intention. We have an idea of that. Then let's take a little bit of what we know. Let's start having a regularity to the day. Let's get up at the same time every day. Let's eat at the same time. Let's get naps in when your child before your child is tired. And let's have a regular bedtime. So I talked about an early bedtime. So there are a few things that predict short sleep. Late bedtimes, irregular bedtimes are two of them and an absence of a bedtime routine. So let's bring bedtime forward. Let's make it regular and let's introduce a bedtime routine. And again, let's think about the bedtime routine that I spoke about because not all bedtime routines are equal. Yet I do, and I'm very aware of parents investing a lot of time at the end of the day. Whereas again, I'd like to make that quicker for everyone because I guess I think that if parents can feel empowered, if they can feel assured and confident in how they're managing things, their children will feel that. 
they will pick up on that. They too will feel confident. They will feel trusting. They will feel loved and seen and heard. And then we can move together in a better direction and just acknowledging that it takes time for things to improve, but that you are the architect of this improvement. And just to start looking for information that resonates for you, that feels right for you and feels manageable and doable and makes sense for you as a parent. Mm. you're right you absolutely nailed it (laughs) I had every confidence so for more on you your Instagram page is Lucy Wolf with an E sleep website is sleepmatters.ie because you're in Ireland and you've got two highly acclaimed best-selling books the baby sleep solution and all about the baby sleep solution which are they're available to buy from most places Right. Did I leave anything out? You've got courses as well. These are online courses, right, on the website? Uh, they are. You can act everything. You can see all my resources on sleepmatters.ie. And I do have plans, online courses that parents can download for immediate kind of um, sort of help. And you can yeah. or you can access it through that website. It'll take you to Lucy Wolf Sleep Plans, but it's all the one. Yeah, Lucy, thank you so much for, for today. It's been I, there's lots of takeaways in there for adults as well, not just the kiddos. Similar, Gabby. Thank you. Yep, sleep has touch points that are relevant to us all. Oh, she did nail it, didn't she? Thank you again to Lucy Wolf, and thank you to you for listening to this episode of the Happier Life Project with me, Gabby Sanderson. And now for the important housekeeping. If you are suffering with your mental health, there is a crisis button on the My Possible Self app, which will signpost you to the correct information for immediate expert advice. Those of you who are listening on one of the podcast platforms, the My Possible Self app is completely free to download, so you don't need to worry about it costing you anything. Please note the views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the interviewees. The content of the podcast should not be considered as a substitute for professional or medical advice. The primary healthcare is not involved in the production or content of this podcast. To find and follow us on social media, if you're not already there, we are at My Possible Self and I've been at Radio Gabby. Please do take care, guys, and I'll see you on the next one. Bye for now.